0: Hello and welcome to Breaking Social.
1: I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're excited to be speaking to Ellie Norman. Ellie has an incredibly impressive and high octane career to date, which has seen her hold positions such as the first ever Director of Marketing and Communications at Formula One and the Head of Advertising and Sponsorship at Virgin Media. Ellie was instrumental in revitalising Formula One by using and creating strategies that acquired a new generation of fans through original ideas, such as the increasingly popular Netflix show Drive to Survive.
0: Having also been the brains behind the Virgin Media and Usain Bolt 9.58 Seconds campaign, it's fair to say her principles in marketing have led her to create unique ideas that make a true impact, and rest assured, you'll be able to tap into them with this conversation and take home some of her expertise and advice. Hi Ellie, really good to meet you.
2: Great to meet you both. How are you?
0: Very well, thank you. Yeah, good. Very good. It's your f- first couple of weeks out of um, out of the F one officially. It
2: is, yeah. So i left um, I left Formula One on the seventeenth of January.
0: Amazing. And what? How do you feel after being there for you were there for five years? How do you feel? Yeah,
2: it's um, exciting and terrifying in equal measures. Exciting because it's now a chance to kind of write the next chapter and really take some time. Um, to kind of catch my breath and see where that next challenge lies. Terrifying in equal measure because I'd never taken a decision like that in my life before.
0: Yeah, I mean, you were the, the first ever director of marketing and communications at the F1. And what did it feel like taking on that role five years ago?
2: One of such pride, actually. Um, because as a sort of uh, young girl I'd always been fascinated by speed, loved cars, went to my first race at the age of 11 uh, which was actually the Le Mans 24 hours. I'd always had that sort of deep seated kind of passion for cars and speed and so to be part of a sport that has been associated with your life for so long made me feel incredibly proud and also to be joining at such a time where it was really sort of ready to be sort of transformed and and to kind of really unlock the power of what the sport holds and to take that to a much broader sort of audience than it had been kind of reaching in uh, previous years.
0: What was that like? You You sort of mentioned that it was, it felt ready to be transformed at that stage. What were the cues for you that were signals that it was ready to change because my experience and probably yours as well if you've watched Mm. films like rush or anything like that i've had the f1 or different formula series the the history of formula one was kind of like a little bit of a boys club or at least that's what it seemed like from my experience watching things like rush and seeing some of the old photos and it's just so what was what were the cues that it was ready to change for you and what was that like entering into that that role
2: so I think in 2017 there was obviously a a huge change that signaled that the sport was kind of ready to to maybe sort of begin a a transformational journey and that was essentially Liberty Media acquired or bought Formula One from sort of Bernie Eccleston and um, Bernie is a sort of really phenomenal kind of human being and he created a sport from kind of nothing over the years and built it into what it was um, or what it has become. Now in 2017 when Liberty kind of media um, bought and acquired the sport it was very much on the sort of basis that there are very few sports leagues that you can buy. In the United States, yes, you can kind of buy a team, but you can't buy the commercial rights to an entire sort of league. So that was sort of clearly appealing to Liberty Media. I think as we're sort of all aware, whether you love motorsport or another form of sports, there is nothing more powerful than sports in being able to kind of aggregate and pull together millions of people to essentially watch um, something live um, week in, week out, and fandom is so powerful compared to most relationships that we will have with kind of brands, which tend to be on a much more kind of transactional service basis. And I think a combination of those things made Formula One very appealing to kind of Liberty. And they certainly believe there was that opportunity to be able to grow the sport and to kind of really uh, take it to the next stage. For me to see that change sort of happening um, with the sort of acquisition having been completed, um, I then had a telephone call from um, a guy called Sean Bratches, who went to Formula One in January 2017 as part of the sort of Liberty uh, media management team. And um, a telephone call from him, and sort of very much listening to the journey that Liberty Media wanted to take sort of Formula One on, was just far too exciting for sort of a marketer like myself or someone who's actually spent their career to date very much operating with uh, repositioning brands, um, behaving as a challenger in a market and really sort of tapping into kind of culture to do that. So, I mean, how could you say no to being able to sort of join one of the the largest, most well-known sports leagues in the world? to be the first kind of director of marketing in Comms and to be able to kind of grow something from from the ground up it was like a dream come true.
0: And that transformation is so apparent in just people's perception of Formula 1 now versus before you you started I, I suppose. Yeah. Even in you were you were kind of instrumental in was it the commissioning of of Drive to Survive, or would you say that, that did Netflix approach you? How did that that whole situation come about? Because you must have seen a, a huge increase in the fan base around Formula One following that that series.
2: Yeah, the fan base has absolutely exploded, and just the desirability, the talkability of the sports, um, the fact that it's regained its edge and a sense of being cool, particularly with how much technology and innovation um, exists within the sport. It's as if people have really rediscovered everything that's always been fantastic about F1. Drive to Survive specifically, very much kind of um, going back to 2017, we did a big piece of research with um, an agency called flamingo and widening kennedy and it was based on kind of semiotics to really understand perceptions and associations with the sport and to summarize what sort of came out from that was the the perception that the sport was very much um, elitist inaccessible and focused on sponsors so sort of didn't care about fans at all now from sort of understanding that diagnosis the um, strategy was kind of put into place with a very clear kind of mission statement and some guiding principles or kind of North Stars to sort of point to. Um, And one of those strategies was to open the sport up and to provide that sort of accessibility, the behind the scenes, without sort of cheapening the sport. And for a sport that had been closed for so many years, Um, there were a lot of approaches from the likes of kind of Netflix, Amazon and sort of others to really sort of come in and to sort of lift the lid on what happens within the sport. Sean had sort of uh, previously had good relationships with a number of them. There's a guy at Formula One called um, Ian Holmes, who's the director of kind of media rights. And really upon the sort of um, evaluation of the proposal on the table, Netflix was just the sort of the right partner to sort of go with. And I think when you're thinking about how do you open up a sport, how do you start to kind of lift the lid and tell those um, behind the scenes stories, Netflix is just at the top of their game. Um, So huge kind of membership numbers across the world, particularly within sort of the United States, which was a, a key strategic market to grow for Formula One absolute best in the business at telling long form stories. And so a combination of that just really felt like it was the right partner to start to kind of build up a series with, because of just that association, and the perception of kind of Netflix, and actually what they could do in telling that sort of story from being inside and part of sort of Formula One. So um, that was quite quickly done. And um, they obviously started sort of filming and travelling to all the races in 2017, that first kind of series then sort of being released um, at the start of uh, 2018.
1: And just, um, just to go a bit deeper on that, obviously Drive to Survive, having it been published and, and watched it, it's obviously a very good representation now of what it is that you were trying to achieve of lifting the lid on the sport. How Was that the first thing that came to mind was it you know a a series on one of these main publishers like amazon netflix was that where your thinking went first or was there many other considerations that were on the table on different content formats altogether how did you end up at that decision to go to that a series like drive to survive was exactly the right call and exactly what what it was that you wanted to do
2: I would say that there's never a single silver bullet that's going to kind of fix or solve all of your sort of problems. So it was very much one sort of lever or one tool within the toolkit. And that piece of research that I sort of referenced, um, a key sort of aspect that came out on lifting that lid was one of the kind of core elements to really sort of build up was drivers as heroes, Mm. or sort of key personnel within the sport as sort of heroes. And I think when you start to strip things back to very basic levels, people by people, so everything that we do in life is based on relationships, the rapport you have with people, how you associate, um, do you see kind of similar characteristics from someone, you're just automatically drawn to some people more than others. Now, With the sport sort of having been perceived as inaccessible, there are also some kind of very uh, practical sort of things that makes Formula One quite different to, say, football. And fundamentally, you have 20 drivers that are typically sitting quite low down and deep in in their cars. Their faces are covered. Um, So they're sitting in those cars, um, pretty much obscured from sort of vision with sort of helmets on. So very, very different to how we would watch kind of football or any of those kind of bat and ball sports. And so this long form opportunity with Netflix was a sort of key driver to really start to bring to life who these people were as human beings, what made them tick, where the relationships were. It really is the most exciting kind of real life soap opera because so much happens behind the sport, and it actually adds far more kind of meaning and, I think, enjoyment to when you're then watching the racing kind of play out on track. So the research was very much people want to be able to associate with the drivers and really kind of know who the drivers are, who the team principals are, their kind of characters. Another kind of key element of that research was very much this sense and notion of kind of wheel-to-wheel racing. So people really want to watch close battles out on track. And there is a superhuman element to what these drivers and these teams are able to kind of do at really sort of pushing the limits of physics to extract as much out of the car. And typically they can be sort of quite opposing forces, but actually the magic really happens within Formula One where you have man and machine working in harmony. And that's where uh, the drivers really kind of take it to the edge with their sort of teams on um, getting that millimetre extra out or that kind of nought point, sort of one, um, sort of a second off their times. And knowing that that had to be sort of addressed was a big part of the Formula One journey led by Ross Bourne at Formula One and the FIA. Um, and we'll see in this season sort of new cars with new regulations, a sort of cost cap to really try to make that racing much, much closer. And then there is obviously this sort of human element of the sport, which we've all been sort of building um, during my time there as well to uh, really sort of bring to life who these kind of people were and to allow sort of people to, to see behind the visor. So Netflix was, was one aspect of that. Opening up social media and sort of growing the social media following, ensuring that there's great kind of content, um, whether that's evergreen content, sort of hero content, just a little bit more behind the scenes across all the kind of key social platforms, and really encouraging the teams and the drivers to also start to do that themselves has been, I think, a huge part of the success. And I think generally, most partners just feeling very enthused by the sort of approach and the investment that was being made, the quality of content and commentating and sort of features that all of the broadcasters do in and around the sort of live sessions and races itself. I think all of these elements and aspects have very much helped to sort of tell the story of Formula One and to make it um, much more exciting and desirable within sort of a new audience as well as continuing to engage an existing fan base.
0: I think that humanization of the sport is, is definitely what everyone can feel, in that, you've got a much much stronger connection with all of the drivers charlie who's um who was on the the call with us previously was like a convert uh into into like an f1 fan and now it wants to marry daniel ricardo i
2: think previously <laughs> there might be a long there might be a long line yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh,
0: it's just that that kind of uh connection that wasn't previously present that i think it made it for me as someone who also I didn't grow up with the F1 so I didn't it was difficult to approach for me because it involved a lot of investment of time to get up to speed there's a lot of puns in this podcast (laughs) (laughs) to get up to speed with uh, what was going on in the particular races who I should be supporting and why why there's specific rivalries all these things and I think because our brains work in narrative and and story add in those human characteristics there was almost kind of cool villains kind of people that were defined mm. in the series as well, which I thought was really interesting. And you could really quickly start to understand the dynamics between all of the drivers and and you've, you mentioned as well, opening up social media is a massive part of that as well, because people can get yeah. much more involved in the drivers' lives. Exactly. They can develop that connection. So I think all of those decisions have been, like you say, instrumental in, in helping more people approach the sport. And it wasn't just that that you've sort of pioneered or, or changed in in the sport it was you did things like remove the track girls from the the track as well which was i wondered if there was because it's an old sport and was there any resistance to that or did you have to did you have to sort of argue with anyone about that or was did you feel like it was just ready and everyone was ready to to change that
2: i think with every change you make particularly with such a well-loved and revered sport there's always going to be sort of resistance from um, some camps and we saw that when we rebranded the sport um, and we certainly saw that with the sort of decision to remove um, the sort of grid girls at the start of the 2018 season the decision was reached relatively sort of quickly um, and it was a conversation and decision just made at a senior sort of leadership team internally at formula one and it was very much with the kind of view of if a sport was being born and created today with the intention of having better representation ensuring sort of that diversity and people feeling like they belong within the sport would you have the role of a of a grid girl or actually would we be sort of really looking to shine a spotlight on where there are opportunities throughout the sport to ensure that sort of gender diversity and that diversity of thinking um, and inclusivity within all of the different roles um, within the sport? And we, we took the decision that actually if you were going to have a sport that was born today and you really sort of um, tried to understand the role that the grid girls were kind of playing, I think the sport had evolved so much from when they were sort of introduced, that it was very hard to say, do you still need them to perform this kind of role? Because, um, you know, fundamentally, with the advances in broadcast, um, with the overlay graphics, we can share to viewers exactly where the cars are on the grid, Uh, driver numbers, you can kind of add that on from an overlay perspective. Typically, within the sort of grandstands, they've got the kind of screens that will have that feed, so they can see that it's very hard to see from a grandstand seat, the sort of level of detail within the sort of lollipops and the drivers know where they have kind of qualified and where their car is in the grid. And obviously the cars are liveried and, and the sort of um, engineers and their team putting the car on the grid are, are with that car. So when you sort of really stripped it back, it was hard to justify that reason to maintain something that was a tradition. But it didn't mean to say it wasn't met with um, sort of resistance. And I think that's just very, very kind of natural. People, Some people are more comfortable with change. Others are less comfortable with change. But I think the key area to kind of focus is from a marketing perspective, it was very much trying to sort of understand and break down what does glamour mean in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021? And how do we ensure that the sport remains desirable and sort of glamorous? But very similarly to how luxury has evolved from the perception of luxury in the 70s to how we perceive luxury today, if you look through the lens of kind of fashion at someone like Virgil Abloh and what he was able to achieve and the sort of collaborations of bringing together sort of urban wear with sort of traditional luxurious Uh, like Maisons, that gives you an indication of how I think luxury has evolved. And it was very much through that lens of working with my team of really saying, well, how is this evolving for sort of Formula One? So how do you maintain that element of desirability and kind of glamour? And we sort of very much moved into identifying who would we love to have as guests at Formula One and how can we build out those experiences through sort of celebrities or use that as an opportunity to create kind of content or even sort of to collaborate through kind of fashion to bring to life new glamour for the sport um, as well as sort of very much kind of working with our local promoters and countries to do it in a way which is also kind of relevant uh, to them and to sort of other partners as well.
1: Were there any other changes of that kind that were made that were made for the purpose of contributing to that new and more realistic version of glamour?
2: When you sort of look back, there were a a number of changes of really sort of understanding what that modern-day version of sort of glamour is. And there are the the more obvious changes like we've just discussed with grid girls and really sort of understanding or identifying who would we love to have as guests within the sport to bring to life modern-day luxury and glamour in a way that feels much more representative of society today. And then there are smaller things. So actually, if you're a guest in hospitality, the way that hospitality has evolved, I think, over the years has kind of changed. And that can be anything through to the to the sort of welcome experience or that sort of guest experience and trying to make that as seamless as possible to understanding your guests much better. So you can have that one-to-one personalization right the way through into how actually food and cuisine and even just the kind of trend of drinks has evolved so i think again it comes back into really trying to understand every touch point and how that's evolving um but still setting a sort of level a level and a benchmark of um quality to really sort of show up and be relevant in society today
0: and i think the the things that you've identified there as well and in the evolution of the sport it's almost like you were instrumental in making sure that the sport wasn't left behind in, in culture. There was definitely cultural evolutions around the sport and it was almost like you had to adapt to what was clearly going on on the outside and developments that were happening in other areas as you've kind of identified. And I suppose it was your role to make sure that that F1 didn't just fall behind because of old habits, I suppose. And you've you've spoken about that before of how, how important it is to for, for brands to be culturally aware. So I was wondering what that meant. Has has that meant anything for the other roles that you've worked in or do you feel like your main influence has been in the F1 on, on cultural change?
2: I would say there's obviously been a lot at Formula One from the sort of cultural being culturally aware. And by being culturally aware one hopes that you can show up in being kind of relevant, being aware of kind of cultural differences to avoid conflict, but also to create sort of really empathetic connections with your kind of target audience. I think the same could be said for my time at Virgin Media. I would say that just generally as a parent company, There is a cultural awareness that just exists that sort of Virgin and that very much comes through in their sort of values. But how we then sort of uh, appropriated that during my time at Virgin Media, I also think was something that's always been, been an element of actually what I've really loved about the places I've worked and my role in kind of marketing to very much have that sort of relevancy with the target audiences that we're wanting to to reach and to ensure that we are sort of maintaining existing sort of audiences that we have as kind of customers or as fans, because nothing in the world stands still. It's therefore about how within a brand you understand your essence and your DNA so that again, you're still kind of true to who you are, but how do you evolve that? So the essence and your DNA remains, but you are kind of showing up in ways that are kind of relevant for today. And that does mean that you are very much continuing to revitalize your brand as you go through time.
0: And you you can definitely see that approach in the pieces that you designed whilst you were at Virgin, like the Usain Bolt, here's what 9.58 seconds feels like, which is a really intense ad. Uh, If anyone's not seen it, definitely Uh, go and watch it where did that idea come from was it from similar ground that the idea came from that you've just spoken about there
2: i mean usain is just such an incredible athlete and human being and a big part of my time at sort of virgin media was really trying to to get across the feeling of speed and being able to appropriate how how useful and needed that speed was for kind of people's broadband connections at home, and really being able to kind of facilitate um, those kind of connections. And there is nothing more simple than having the, the fastest man on the planet to really sort of uh, be able to communicate and to kind of carry the importance of speed. And at a brand level, there was that sort of coding or the association that during that sort of period of time, Usain was the ambassador for Virgin Media clearly the fastest kind of man um, on the planet. And at that time, it was very much linked into, again, the sort of cultural event of the Olympics. So by understanding that sort of context and the environment very much kind of led to that sort of campaign. And at a brand level, we were able to kind of lead with that, but then ensure that there was the sort of more direct performance driven kind of marketing to very much help with driving through conversions and ultimately kind of subscriptions and helping customers understand what the right package was for them depending on kind of household sort of usage or sort of needs and so that was a a super campaign to work on he's an amazing guy but part of again a suite of campaigns and work to very much build out a sort of brand platform that had longevity as we were sort of really understanding the importance of connectivity, particularly with increased usage of people connecting things at home. So whether it's the internet of things or kind of actually gaming, um, streaming kind of content, music. So it was very much sort of really tapping into sort of all of that, um, which was really, really, really kind of uh, super and I'd say another on the sort of Formula One side, a sort of another quite quick kind of pivot was clearly during the the pandemic where we stopped racing. Um, so we normally start the race season in Formula One would start in March and obviously sort of everything shut down. And people are used to having that regular kind of cadence of when the races take place. So within the period of sort of two to three weeks to move the entire sort of series online and host virtual Grand Prixs with a number of the Formula One drivers, online gamers, um, and having fans to kind of be able to kind of tune in and watch that via Twitch or via our kind of social platforms, again, just was, I think, a, a great way of demonstrating how quickly the sport was able to recognise but move into something that was culturally appropriate maintained an element of clearly sort of salience because we were there virtually racing on the weekends that would have been a normal kind of race but also provided a another opportunity to really sort of understand the drivers and their kind of characters and to see them just kind of having fun and messing around together actually in their home environments seeing their kind of faces uh, And during that sort of time before physically starting racing again, I believe from memory, we started racing again in Austria in sort of um, early July of 2020. But during that virtual racing time, it was like 34 million streams of people kind of tuning in to watch the virtual races. I think it was an element of familiarity that you had the regular kind of cadence of a Formula One season provided an element of a kind of escapism or sort of a sense of um, normality before then the physical races started up again in, in July of 2020.
0: And just before um, we ask about your creative approach, I was actually, I wanted to ask, there's there's sort of themes that are coming up around speed or around racing in your work. And I was just wondering, what was it about the way that you grew up that created this tendency to lean towards things like racing, things like whether it's cars or whether it's the idea of speed in general, what was it that kind of created that approach?
2: Do you know what, that's a fantastic question. And I don't know whether you're kind of born with just this kind of curiosity to see how fast you can go on stuff. But I grew up in the sort of countryside on a farm. So there was a lot of stuff around to be building jumps or kind of setting out your own kind of courses, whether that's on your, I don't know, your BMX, or actually, if you're on sort of a piece of machinery, the ability to learn to drive in sort of fields at a younger age, you can be out on the road. I've always just loved that sense of how fast can you go, understanding how things work. And I certainly remember the first car i really was like wow i i would love one of those and i have to say i don't have one of these was the jaguar e-type um and i remember seeing one of those and being like wow that is an absolutely beautiful car and since then it just really kind of grew and grew
0: and there's something about living in the countryside as well one of my friends is from the the lake district and lives on a chicken farm but his dad's got a gtr and he uh he took me out in it once and i've never been in a a car like that before I've driven like one litre Nissan or Toyota Yaris's and then yeah now I've got like a 1.6 so I've never experienced speed until it was like going on um Rita at Alton Towers <laughs> like the 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 way that it sort of slams your head back into the seat and things like that and it is really it's
2: exhilarating isn't it yeah it is so exhilarating and I had the most incredible experience in um, Austin so the race in the United States in 2017 so my first season within the sport and at that time there was a two-seater Formula One car that um, was used and I uh, was lucky enough to have the opportunity to have uh, three laps as a passenger in this two-seater Formula One car an old car And it was just the most exhilarating thing. I mean, I literally could have kept going round and round. And the most impressive aspect for me was the cornering speeds and actually the kind of braking. So how late you could kind of break into the corners more so than that sort of acceleration. But I came out like absolutely kind of buzzing. But for the next kind of few days, I sort of woke up and I was like, crikey, my neck's like really stiff. My body ached. And I've clearly just sat there and done nothing. Um, But it just goes to show how even a a much older car, most probably doing 20 seconds slower a lap than a Formula 1 driver was in 2017, just goes to show how physical um, the sport is. And they are phenomenal athletes that I think because they are relatively proportioned to look at versus, say, a heavyweight boxer... You just don't really appreciate how phenomenally kind of fit these kind of drivers are but uh, I certainly felt it after three laps and just having sat there and done absolutely nothing.
0: Do you think when it comes to your creative ideas you're almost given that you've had these experiences and you know what it feels like to whether it's going super fast or whether it is what it's like to be in an F1 car do you think part of your creative approach is kind of trying to transfer those ideas and feelings over to whoever it is that is your audience.
2: I do think, you know, we're all made up from a number of senses and some people have a spike for a visual, some people have a spike for sound, smell, and as I th- as I've sort of thought about building brands, Um, you know, you ultimately want to have a sort of operating system where your brand comes to life through all of the different senses. And something like Formula One really does touch every single sense. It's such a visceral sport. You hear it, you feel it, you see it, make sure uh, the heads on your arm stand up. And being able to have been in the fortunate position to have experienced that and then to be actually working with sort of agency partners as to how do you best translate that. Because you have this huge fan base across the world where you're sort of talking five, six, 700 million fans. And in 2019, there were 4.2 million people who were able to physically attend a Grand Prix. So that's a, a massive sort of difference. But actually, if we think about our media landscape and all of those opportunities to try to convey a sense of this visceral feeling, that's a great sort of space and territory to be really sort of developing your brand and thinking about your kind of marketing strategy and your sort of annual plans.
1: It's always something I'm, I'm interested in, in finding out because, I mean, ideas have got to start somewhere. And I think one of the things I always try to find out about people is where exactly does. Their creative approach start and how do you end up at the final point? I think some of the examples that we've touched on before, I think specifically the the Usain Bolt example nine point five eight seconds drive to survive series, um, even you know the streams that were going on during lockdown over Twitch, really really strong and iconic ideas. And you know it's very easy to look for us to look retrospectively and almost say all of these ideas are brilliant. Every idea that must come out of of Ellie and her team must be amazing. Where does that start? What is the creative approach and and how do you decide whether things are right or wrong or whether they need amending to get to the right endpoint? What is that process for you?
2: There is part logical process, so absolutely the sort of mind and the kind of science of being very, very clear on, I suppose, a problem you're trying to solve or actually how are you kind of positioned, what competitors are doing, who are you trying to reach kind of audience-wise to actually having a very kind of clear brief for me as well there's so much in the the heart and the kind of feeling and tapping into your kind of gut of what feels right for the brand but also what feels what actually makes you feel a little little bit scared or nervous by it because that very early sort of ideation or a gem of an idea should make you feel a little, a little bit kind of nervous and when I've had ideas presented to me in the past from um, kind of creative agencies, it's kind of felt great to not know exactly how this is going to come out because actually you'll go through your your ideation time, you will sort of develop this idea and it needs kind of nurturing and developing and um, kind of caring for and I always think if it feels too familiar when it's presented to you as a germ of an idea, how is that genuinely going to kind of cut through and to be powerful and impactful in kind of market? And so what I've tried to do is when I'm working with creative agencies is to start out with a clear brief, but for their creativity is to give them the freedom to go very, very wide. to kind of just put everything out there doesn't matter how crazy you might think that is. Let's just go super, super wide. And throughout that kind of process, let's kind of just bring it closer and closer in. And then actually sort of um, get to one idea and start sort of really evolve that and and to allow them to craft it. And you got to trust the process. And um, the one thing I know is, I can't do what they do. Um, And so trust the process work as a team and input at the right stages and allow them that, that freedom to go through their own kind of creative processes. And the craft is so important with the work. Coming back to how we all have our senses, the sound effects, the kind of music, the kind of craft of the image, it's so vitally important to get that to a, to a sort of point in time where it's it's relevant it kind of has an impact and it's kind of clearly from your brand as well so um lots of people in that kind of process but the way that i do like to start is by having the the diagnosis or the kind of data and the science bit up front good kind of um briefing session so discussion with sort of everyone but then ensuring that sort of middle pit Of the sort of creative development there is that sort of freedom to go out very very broad spend some time kind of in there um, and then sort of really craft something at the end Um, and I think it's important to know when you take people on the journey with you and when you're sharing work and I think you learn with time when you share work and who you share that kind of work with because it's as much about giving that reassurance that ultimately what is being created might not be liked by everyone, but this isn't about subjectivity. This is about being kind of objective of, is this going to deliver against the brief? Is this going to solve the kind of problem or deliver for the um, objective? And importantly, agreeing how that will be kind of measured at the end of that kind of process.
0: And I was wondering, over the the course of your entire career, have you developed any... Core principles that you take into every role, or that you feel like brands should always consider when they're when they're thinking about how to market their product or service or, or sports or whatever it might be.
2: What got you to where you you are today most probably won't get you to kind of where you're going. And so, to date, what I think about is very much having had incredible kind of chapters. But if my life is a book, I've only kind of done a few chapters. So there's kind of some more to come. But the way that I like to think about starting each chapter is very much to, in some respects, walk in stupid every day. And by that, I mean taking time to really listen and to understand and to kind of distill with people around the kind of business and the organization. Versus kind of coming in and saying, well, you know, I've done this. I've had this success here and we're going to do exactly the same. How can anyone possibly know genuinely inside of somewhere what needs fixing, what needs kind of solving? So it's really taking that time to spend time to listen, to understand what would actually help others do their job easier. How could marketing support that? Uh, And then sort of being able to kind of really go away. And quite often what I have found is by going through that process, you start to obviously build relationships with people. People fundamentally do want to help you um, through that process, that journey of being kind of new within an organization. And um, you'll typically have some sort of overlapping themes or some kind of areas that then actually helps you to prioritize and to focus. Where do we need to start? Because in most cases, we all want to do sort of everything. And to date, I have never been in a role where I've had the budget and the resource to be able to do absolutely everything. So um, the hardest thing is often to say no, and to be able to kind of prioritize and focus, how are you going to best use that resource, whether it's kind of people or budget, to genuinely move the needle and to deliver on something. And That's incredibly helpful to have those kind of relationships in an organization and to to really sort of go in and to understand where some of those challenges are to then actually be able to distill that, play it back, get the alignment, and then go forward with a sort of plan to deliver on it.
1: I um, really like that answer. And (laughs) I just wanted to ask, uh, going in on that again, where you talked about, you know, sometimes depending on what resources available, be it people, be it budget, you have to prioritize and make a decision. Some of the examples we've talked about um, that you've worked on are obviously really impactful moments that have happened not only for the brands that they um, were for, but also in the culture that they all take part in. In your opinion, do you think it's possible to have that level of impact with less resource, be it people and you know smaller, much smaller budgets?
2: Yeah, I do. I think another interesting aspect to a brief is constraint. Hmm. And... Sometimes by having a small budget or a limited resource, essentially that kind of sh- constraint does mean that you actually have to approach something in, in a way that hasn't been done before. Or quite often that's where sort of innovation can come from. And I think so much now there is an openness to collaboration. And even when you look at creators today, if you're clear upfront about what you do have and where your constraints are, And you can pull the right people together. I do think that you can create incredible kind of impact with what might be perceived as like a limited budget or not as many people in your team as you kind of wish you had. And sometimes that can just be great fun.
1: I love that, So this is the last question we've got for you. And it is a question that we actually ask all of our guests as a final question, just to see what their answer is and, and compare and see if there's any similarities. And that question is, uh, what quality do you see within yourself that you feel, without, you wouldn't succeed?
2: Oh, that is a great question. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> I would say empathy. Marketing, typically as a function, is far-reaching in the sense that you will typically work across sort of organisations and you are, again, very much sort of working with delivering something for a target audience and the ability to be able to kind of empathize or to be able to try to put yourself in someone else's shoes to try to get to that sort of right answer um, has certainly helped me to date and I think that the way I lead is with empathy and kindness and I think that's really sort of helped me by having typically kind of small teams and limited kind of resources my style of sort of leadership through sort of empathy is always having my team's back, but kind of being there to sort of stand behind them and encourage them or to stand in front of them if I we're about to get hit by a bus. Um, and I think as a result of being like that, when you got to dig deep, um, because not every day is is a kind of great day. So when you got to dig deep, people typically will want to sort of dig deep with you because of how you've treated them.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Ellie. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Social. Make sure you subscribe to us so you're notified when an episode drops. And if you want to keep up with what we're doing at Campfire, make sure to follow us on the socials in the show notes. We'll be
1: back next Tuesday with another episode.